What's up, Seacoast? My name is Matt, and it's a pleasure to be here this morning, be able to teach from God's Word. If you guys have your Bibles, uh, would you turn or tap your way to the book of Jonah? We're going to dive right in. Pun absolutely intended. Come on. Nah. Uh, the book of Jonah. Okay, so it's a tiny, itty-bitty little tiny book. And so if you have to use your table of contents, don't feel any shame. I had to earlier. Um, we are, we're in a series called In Good Company where we're looking at grace. We're finding grace for the present from lives from the past. And so we're looking through all these different characters of throughout the Bible. And even though centuries separate our lives what we see is that the same God who had grace and was displaying that grace in their lives, that he's the same God that wants to work and move today in your life and in mine. And so I'm excited for what we're going to look at today. And uh, Jonah, I'm particularly excited uh, for the book and the story of Jonah because it was actually the story of Jonah about seven or eight years ago that God used the story of Jonah to bring the gospel to life for me in a fresh and liberating way. It was the story of Jonah. I'm going to do a quick, quick little story here. Um, I was at the time, about seven or eight years ago, I was actually reading a lot of commentaries, reading through Jonah and reading commentaries and different books written on Jonah, just kind of eating it up. And I was, um, I was on my little walk to go get coffee from the little coffee stand right around the corner, the, the corner of death, that's what I call it. I mean, that corner is sketchy. But I was on my way back, you know, on a leisurely little stroll, reading a commentary on the book of Jonah, and there was a sentence that I read. I was, I was coming around the corner right there that I'll never forget. I'll never forget where I was and the sentence that I read because it changed everything for me. The sentence simply was, the gospel is for Christians too. Simple sentence. The gospel is for Christians too. I, I once heard someone say that books don't change lives sentences do. And for me, that, that was so true right there in that moment. The gospel is for Christians too. See, God used that moment, he used that sentence to help me realize um, and understand something I desperately needed to realize and understand. You see, up until that point, I had a, what I would call a one-dimensional view of the gospel. I mean, the gospel was really good news for the unbeliever. It was amazing news of like, like that Jesus came, he lived the life that we could never live, he died the death that we deserved to die, and that was amazing news for the person to believe who was not yet saved. That was news for the unbeliever, for the unsaved person. For me, I had a one-dimensional view of the gospel. It was just something that you needed to believe in order to get your ticket to heaven. It's forgiveness of sins and a ticket to heaven. And God used that moment to help me realize that I had, been, I had had a one-dimensional view of the gospel. I had viewed it as just, it's, you know, what it was was good news for someone to believe in order to get saved. But then once you get saved, it's all about getting busy. That was the next step for Christians. There was no good news for me as a Christian. It was like, you believe this awesome news, get saved, now it's time to get busy. You went from getting saved to getting busy. That was my view. But God, what he showed me through the story of Jonah... Uh, was that the gospel, it's not just the diving board that we dive off of, you know, into the pool of Christianity, and then we swim to deep theological waters. No, the gospel is the pool. 
The gospel is the pool that we jump or jump into and swim deeper and deeper into the gospel. You see, once God rescues us, he doesn't, he doesn't graduate us from the gospel. He grows us into it deeper. He grows us deeper into it. So Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians need the gospel. Someone else, I heard them say that the only antidote to sin is the gospel. And since Christians continue to sin even after they're converted, the gospel must be the medicine that Christians take every day. You see, the good news of God's relenting, a relentless and rescuing grace for non-Christians is the very same news that Christians need to believe daily. And so God doesn't just save us by grace. He also grows us by grace. And that was something that began to click right there around the corner. The corner of death became the corner of life for me. <laughs> I'll always remember that. And so, and it was the story of Jonah that God used in a powerful way to help bring that fresh and liberating reminder of the gospel. And so what we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to jump into Jonah today. Uh, super, super simple outline. What I want to do is just, I want to cruise through first and just look at the story. We're just going to look at the story of Jonah. It's going to be high level, you know, maybe the view, like the astronaut view. And then we're going to, what I want to do is close by looking at the significance of the story. So first, the story. Look with me at Jonah chapter 1. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So some quick context here. Jonah, first of all, he's not some random dude that God's like, okay, who's going to go? How about you? You go. No, Jonah was a prophet. So his job was to go and to speak on behalf of God, to speak on behalf of God. And it was interesting too, not, it was very pretty rare that a, a prophet of Israel would go and speak to a different nation. But here he's being called to go and to preach against Nineveh. Um, Jonah's not, it's, when we read about him in the book of Jonah, it's not the first time he's mentioned. Actually, back in 2 Kings, there's a little story there of Jonah actually having a, uh, a successful prophecy which benefited Israel at the time. In 2 Kings, you can read about that story. So Jonah was probably, it's likely he was well-known. He was a successful prophet. He was maybe a rock star prophet with a great resume and just an awesome reputation. And now God has a new assignment for him. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. Now, Nineveh, there's a lot we could say about Nineveh, but what we need to know is that Nineveh at this time, they were the bitter enemies of Israel, and they were just, there was one of the biggest and one of the baddest cities that there were. I mean, their reputation was pretty gnarly. They were greatly feared for their brutality. I mean, no one had a worse reputation. I was reading about some of the stuff that they were known for. I'm not even going to go into the details of it. It's disgusting. Just to know, know this, that their foreign policy consisted of terror and atrocity. And then there's Jonah, who he probably possessed a strong sense of national and spiritual pride in who he was, where he was from. And now God's saying, you're going to go to the enemy and preach against them. And if you're reading the story, if you're hearing it if you were hearing it for the first time, you might be thinking like, dang, okay, Jonah's going to go and preach against the enemy. 
and God's going to wipe them out. Jonah's going to have another W. He's going to win. He's going to come back. He's going to be a national hero. I mean, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Verse 3, we see that Jonah runs away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, God says left, and Jonah goes right. As in, yeah, right, I ain't going to do that. There's no way that I'm going. And I, I think with the reputation that Nineveh had of being super, just uh, um, the atrocity and all of the different things that they were known for, it might be easy to assume Jonah doesn't want to go. I mean, that's pretty scary, right? That's like some pretty gnarly stuff. I don't want to put myself in danger. You know, that would be natural to assume that. But I have a spoiler alert. Spoiler. In chapter 4, Jonah actually spills the beans as to why he doesn't want to go in the first place. And it's important for us to see that so that it can kind of be, you know, an interpretive lens as we cruise through this story. In chapter 4, he, he, he knows Check this out. He knows God's character. He says, I know that you're compassionate. I know that you're merciful. I know that you are going, you want to, and you are going to spare them. And Jonah could not handle the idea of that, that God would spare his enemy. So it's important to see that Jonah is not fleeing in fear that the mission is going to fail. He's fleeing because he knows the mission is going to be a success. He's not afraid of failure. He's afraid of success. And so he flees and he runs from God. And one thing that we see here that is important to see is a picture of sin. I mean, sin really at its core, it's flight from God. It's us, it's us saying in word, in thought, and in deed that I know better than you, God. Your wisdom is limited. I have greater wisdom. I have a greater ability to navigate this situation. It's at, at the core, that is what we are doing. It's us trying to be our own God. At the core of every sin, it doesn't matter what it is, every sin at the core, it's not just a behavior issue. Sin is not just a behavior. First and foremost, it's a, it comes from a belief issue. We sin because at the core, Somewhere we believe that God cannot be trusted, and so therefore we need to take matters into our own hands. God, I can't trust you in this, and so I'm going to go and do this on my own. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so what we see Jonah doing here, and him running, his flight from God, that's a picture of sin. It's a picture of him taking matters into his own hands. And so he goes down to Joppa. He buys a one-way ticket to Tarshish. It's a fun word to say, Tarshish. Which, by the way, if you look at a map, you got... You've got, um, you've got Nineveh going this way, and then Tarshish is in the complete opposite direction. It was the edge of the known world at the time. And so this right here is blatant rebellion. Jonah's going in literally the opposite direction. And I think it's a little ridiculous to think that Jonah can hide from God. I mean, this is the same God that David described in Psalm 139, where he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. It's a little silly to think. It's like kids, when you play hide and seek with kids, and they think that they're hiding from you because they pull the covers over them. You've got like a little like human-shaped lump on the bed. You're like, oh, where are you? I mean, it's silly to think that we can escape and run and hide from God. But Jonah, he steps aboard 
and they set sail. And the next thing that we see in verse 4 is that God sends a storm. And this isn't just any old storm. This is a great, violent storm. So the storm is so bad that the ship is now threatening to break apart. The sailors are freaking out and they're throwing their cargo overboard to lighten the ship in order to save it and to save their lives. And the question is, where is Jonah in all of this? And we see that Jonah has gone down below deck. He's not just down there afraid, he's down there sleeping. He's taking a nap. The language here, as you're working through these first few verses, is very intentional. Notice this in verse 3 that Jonah, he went down to Joppa. He found a ship, he paid the fare, and then we, in verse 5 that we see he went down below deck and now was lying down asleep. See, Jonah, in his flight from God and running from God, he has a downward trajectory. It's downward. And the lesson for us here is that when we run from God, really there is nowhere but down to go. There's nowhere but down to go. We may believe that by doing things our way, I'm going to do this my way, that if we do that, then we're finally going to be free We'll experience that, that, the peace that we are looking for. But the truth is that we cannot experience the hope and the love that our hearts long for, that our hearts crave anywhere apart from God. I mean, God, he created and wired you and me to experience wholeness and satisfaction in him and in him alone. I think it was St. Augustine who said it this way. He said, Our hearts were made for you, O God, and they are restless until they rest in you. You see, flight from God, it always leads in a downward trajectory. And it also leaves us feeling miserable. Doesn't it? I mean, misery, so when misery is instantaneous, that's actually a blessing. You know, I, I chose sin, and I'm feeling, I feel miserable, and that misery actually reminds me that I'm not created for sin. And so in that moment, God is using the misery to bring me to my senses. When it's instantaneous like that, I get to, I get to confess, I get to repent, I get to, to praise God for his forgiveness and for his love. When, mis when misery is instantaneous like that, it's actually a blessing, it's a gift but more often than not, what we see is misery comes as a slow and subtle numbing of our soul, leaving us calloused to the very things that were meant to make us feel alive. It comes when we make slow and subtle compromises in our lives. You know, one example is marital affairs. I mean, affairs don't happen overnight. They happen as a slow process of your heart becoming cold to your spouse and being warmed by another. And what was once unthinkable becomes desirable, now becomes acceptable. And so it's the slow process of, of us becoming and falling asleep to the very things that were meant to make us feel alive. The love of God, his joy, internal shalom. And so you see, we see this, this downward trajectory. It always leaves us feeling miserable, whether it's instantaneous or not. It always leaves us feeling miserable. And guess what? It always it will make others in our lives miserable as well. I mean, just think about the sailors. They were having a pretty great day until Jonah decided to run from God and cho chose their ship. 
They're in the mess that they're in because of Jonah and him running from God. But let's make no mistake about it. The misery is a gift. It's God's gracious reminder to you and to me that we're not created for sin. Sin will never satisfy. The only satisfaction we will ever find is in him. So there Jonah is. He's asleep, and the captain comes in. He wakes him up, and then the sailors all begin to interrogate him. Uh, Look at verse 8. They say to him, like, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? That's a lot of questions. Like, uh. You know, the the sailors, they ask him these questions, and here's Jonah's response. Verse 9, he says to them, I am a Hebrew, and I worship, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I mean, there couldn't be greater irony than in that moment. And he says so the sailors are now fully aware that this whole thing is Jonah's fault. Then the men, verse 10, became extremely frightened and said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I don't know about you, like, that's just random. I mean, what was the context in which that came up? You know, he gets on board, he's putting his luggage away, and they're like, So, where are you going? Is this vacation for you? You know, are you head home? How's it going? He's like, I'm running from God. I mean, what was the context where Jonah gave him that information? I don't know. Verse 11, he says, The sailors say to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Then he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. And my thought here is, if you know it's your fault for the storm, then throw yourself overboard. Don't make us do it. Don't make me do it. That's exactly what the sailors are experiencing. They don't want to do that. They didn't want to be guilty of kill, killing Jonah, especially as they're getting really well acquainted with Jonah's God. Like, I, I don't want to throw him overboard. But then check this out. The sailors, these are the pagan sailors, mind you. The pagan sailors, they ask God for mercy for what they are about to do. They, uh, that the pagan sailors in this moment, they're actually exhibiting more reverence and fear of God than Jonah the prophet is. It couldn't be more stark. What is going on over here? <laughs> um, try not to be distracted. Focus. Uh, so check it out. Verse 15. They picked up Jonah. They threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I, mean, I think that's crazy. Right, now, right here, we're seeing this amazing contrast. We're seeing a hard-hearted prophet rebelling against God, contrasted with soft-hearted pagans who are now repenting to God. That's an amazing contrast, and it doesn't make sense. And so you might think, that this would be the end of the story. They throw him overboard. You know, God asked Jonah to go, and Jonah, he ran, and then God caught him, you know, and then Jonah dies, and the sailors all, are, they live. I mean, the end, that would be a great end of the story, right? But God isn't done with Jonah. And so what we see next is that God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. In verse 17, it tells us that he was in the fish for three days and three nights. And while he's in the fish, he, he makes a prayer he, he prays to God, and this, in chapter 2, captures that prayer. I'm just going to read portions of it here. It's not up on the screen, but if you have your Bible, you can follow along. Verse 1, he says, I called 
out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of the grave. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and your current engulfed me. All of your breakers and billows passed over me. Skipping ahead to verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols, they forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. There's a lot of truth in that prayer. And that prayer sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? It sounds really holy. It sounds like a lot of the prayers that we pray. Like, God, you're so great. I did, you know, like we, we have it adorned with all of this great language. But what's missing from this prayer? This prayer, there's a lot of thanksgiving, absolutely. Jonah is, is absolutely thankful for God's rescue, that God hasn't abandoned him. But there's nothing in this prayer that even mentions running away. There's nothing that resembles repentance. There's nothing that resembles confession. I mean, Jonah doesn't really ever say anything about running away. And you gotta, at this point, you've got to be wondering, Man, God, why, why are you going through all of this stuff to rescue Jonah? I mean, is he really that, is he worth it? I mean, so far we've seen God send this, a great wind. He sent a violent storm. He sent a great fish. Why go through all of this? And the answer isn't because God needs Jonah. I mean, let's be honest, he could have easily found someone else. He could easily have found someone else to go and to accomplish that mission. Now, the truth is that God doesn't need Jonah. Jonah needs God. I mean, you think about this. The, the un, what, would, what would have been the unloving thing to do in this situation? The unloving thing to do, if you, from God's perspective, would just to be to let Jonah go. All right, go have your way. Go to Tarshish. Collect seashells for the rest of your life. I don't care. I mean, that would have been the unloving thing to do. Let Jonah go, have his way, be separated. But God isn't in the business of giving up on those he loves. He's a God who relentlessly pursues rebels, relentlessly pursues runaways. And you see the storm, this was a huge paradigm shift for me. The storm was not punishment. It's easy to look at the storm and, oh, God's just punishing him. He's so mad. He's so angry. So therefore, don't make God angry. Don't make him mad. He's going to, oh, he's going to get you. But the storm here, understanding the context of the story, the storm is not punishment. The storm is not a reprimand. The storm is a rescue. The storm is not a reprimand from a cranky deity. It was a rescue by a loving God who will spare no expense to go and rescue those he loves. See, God is saving Jonah from Jonah. And as we'll see next, there's still more work to be done in Jonah's heart. So after three days, three nights, the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. That doesn't need any explaining. We're good to go. We'll move on. Um, chapter three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. It's just interesting here. There's something we learn about the character and nature of God. It's like God doesn't hold grudges. I mean, you and I do. We do it all the time. Like, you hurt me. You owe me. I'm done with you. We see here God had every reason, every right to do that, but he, God doesn't hold grudges. And this is another aspect, another picture, a little microcosm of the gospel right here in this story. 
See, God doesn't count our sins against us as 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. And through the gospel, God counts all of our sin against Christ. That Jesus, he took on all of our wrongs so that we could take on his right. God doesn't hold grudges. And the story now moves on. It tells us that Jonah, he obeyed God and he went to Nineveh. But again, knowing his heart, knowing that he does not want this whole thing to happen. So this isn't just obedience. Jonah is, it's compliance. Is a better way to put it. He's complying. All God gets from Jonah here is external compliance. Sure, he goes. Sure, he, he, does, he picks himself up and he goes to Nineveh, but he goes with a disengaged heart. And I think it's a mistake for us to think that God, all that God is interested in is in our mere obedience. Just do what he says. Just do what he says. But God is not just interested in mere obedience. He's interested in a certain kind of obedience. He's interested in obedience that flows from a heart that's been captured and, and, and wrapped by his grace and changed by his grace. That, the obedience that flows from that kind of heart, that's what God is interested in. He's not just interested in external compliance. If, if God was only interested in our obedience and external compliance, and Jesus would have praised the Pharisees. He would have praised the religious leaders instead of rebuke them because they were the ones who were getting it done, were they not? There was a group of people when Jesus was on earth doing his ministry that were, were perfect in terms of like the, the keeping the rules. And they, but Jesus called them out because he, he called them whitewashed tombs. You know, on the outside, you're so clean and you're getting it done, but on the inside, you're dead. Your heart is far from me. And so let's not make the mistake of thinking that all God cares about is you getting it done. Go do what he says. Come on. No, he, he, first and foremost, he wants your heart. Because he knows when he has your heart, all of that obedience is going to flow from that. So Jonah says, fine, fine, I'll do it. He goes with a disengaged heart. And check out the sermon that he preached. This is a great sermon. In English, it's eight words. Some of you are like, can we do more eight-word sermons around here? That'd be great. Eight, Eight words. In Hebrew, it's five words. I don't know Hebrew. A commentary told me that. Uh, an eight-word sermon. Check it out. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Let's pray. That's his, are you kidding me? That's the sermon? That's the message? Forty more days and Nineveh will, will be overturned. I mean, what kind of message is that? If you're, you're looking at it, it doesn't say anything about Nineveh's sin. It doesn't even give them an idea of how to respond. It doesn't say anything. It's just, really, it's just bad news. It's just doom and gloom. There's no news of great mercy and great grace, both things of which Jonah had just experienced himself. There's no news of that. But what's cool is the most awesome thing happens right after that is citywide repentance breaks out. You see, the same God who controls the weather, the same God who controls the sea monsters, is now changing hearts of sinners. He's in control. We see that the entire city repents. I mean, even the animals are getting saved. I know some cats that need to get saved. Um, but that's a different sermon. I mean, you would have thought like, this would be like a huge win for Jonah. I mean, he goes, he preaches the bare minimum. All right, I'm going to go talk. I'm going to share, share with them, but I'm not going to like, make it easy for them. He just 
40 more days, and then everyone will be overturned, and just repentance breaks out. Everyone's getting saved. You'd think that Jonah would be like, oh, man, okay, I get it. And like, wow, this is amazing. Look what God's doing. But Jonah is furious. He's furious. And this is where Jonah puts his cards on the table. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, the one who re- relents concerning calamity. I knew you were going to save them. I knew it. And now I just want to die. I want to die. I mean, that's what he says. And that's what, I mean, it's like literally, could you be more, could it be more of an overreaction? <laughs> I just want to die. I mean, what in the world's going on? You know when someone's reaction doesn't really match the situation? You're like, okay, let's hit pause. Like, what's going on? Let's eat the service. This is an overreaction. The overreaction is a clue that there's something else going on. Jonah, like, what is his deal? <laughs> Jonah, again, he didn't like the fact that God would have compassion on his enemy. But why would this make Jonah want to die? I can understand being angry, but why would it make, you, make him want to die? I think the answer is that because Jonah's very reasons for living were now being stripped from him. Let me explain that a little bit. There's different ways to look at this, but Jonah in, in many ways had come to idolize what made him special, what made him unique. I mean, after all, he was, a, he was an Israelite, God's chosen people. He was not just an Israelite, he was a prophet of Israel. You know, his reply to the sailors when they were interrogating him. You know, who are you? What is your country? Where are you from? He's like, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord God who made all of this. And when he's in the fish with his prayers, you know, God, those idol worshipers, they don't know what I know. They don't have what I have. I'm going to worship you. Salvation is from you. But those idol worshipers, huh. So we see Jonah in many ways had grown to depend on his unique national and religious pedigree to give his life meaning. I mean, if everyone had what I have, what would make me special? Have you ever felt that? I mean, how much stuff do we hold on to? Because if everyone had what I have, and this makes me special, if everyone had that, then what would, who would I be? I would be no one. I would be nothing. If my enemies had what I have, who would I be? There's... Also, the option of just think about Jonah as a prophet of Israel coming back and reporting, hey, I brought the enemy with me. We're all friends now. I mean, think about what his reputation might have been. This is, you know, this is speculation, but think about his reputation. Uh, I saved the enemy. They're, they're part of the family now. Maybe losing his reputation would be too much to bear. What are other people going to think of me? Whatever it was. God here was exposing Jonah's idols. And see, whenever our reason for living is stripped away and taken from us, it makes us want to die. And let me ask this question to us. What is it if, that if you lost it would make you feel that life was not worth living? Chances are we all have that thing. What is it if you lost it would make you feel like life was not worth living? What do you trust in other than Jesus to give your life meaning and to make life worth living? And just know this, that God is absolutely relentlessly committed to setting you free from whatever it is that you're worshiping. 
that is smaller than him. And so God asked Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah's like, Phew. so he goes outside of the city. He sets up a little camp out there and he's like tailgating, waiting to see if at the end of these 40 days, is this going to happen? So he sets up his little tailgating. He's sitting out there and God actually provides a vine that grows up and gives Jonah some shade. The sun was coming down. He was like, so the vine provides some shade and Jonah really liked that. That was really nice. Thank you, God. But the next day, what we see is a little worm comes and eats, eats at the vine and the worm destroys the vine. So now all Jonah's shade is gone and he's miserable. He's so angry. He's like, ah, I could just die. God's like, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? He's like, I do. Now just kill me. And this is how the book ends with God saying this to Jonah. Verse 10, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? The end. <laughs> That's where the story ends, which just feels random. You know, like, I want to know, when does chapter 5 come out? You know, when's the next season start? Because I want to know what happens to Jonah. What did he decide? What did he do? But I think there's a reason why there's no chapter five. And the reason is because I don't think the book is ultimately about Jonah. If it was about Jonah, then a chapter five would absolutely make sense. We would need that resolution. But ultimately, what we see is that Jonah is not a book about Jonah. It's a story that's ultimately about God. And we've taken a survey, a really quick overview of the story. And now what I want to do is just close by looking at the significance you see, Jonah, in many ways, is about Jonah. You know, his story of running and, and what we've covered. In many ways, we could say that Jonah's about us, that there's a Jonah inside all of us, and we're all running in one way, shape, or form. But ultimately, what we see here is that Jonah is about God. It's a story, ultimately, about who God is. You see, many years after Jonah was sent, God would send an, another messenger and this messenger would be very different than Jonah. This messenger went on the mission that was given to him willingly. He went joyfully, and he went without hesitation. And unlike Jonah, who in rebellion, he ran from his enemies, this messenger in submission ran toward them. And this messenger, messenger didn't just have a message. This messenger was God's message to the people. John chapter 1 calls this messenger, calls him the word. He was everything that God wanted to say to this world in a person. You see, Jesus is the true and better Jonah who succeeded where Jonah failed. You see, Jonah, he, he waited to be get thrown overboard, but Jesus doesn't wait to get thrown overboard. Jesus dives in head first, and he takes on the depths of our sin. And in, the, in that deep, deep darkness, he's, he was overcome by the waves of our guilt. And three days later, he emerged from that deep darkness victorious and determined to pursue his enemies with life-giving love. 
You see, this whole story is about God's relentless and inexhaustible grace, not just for the good person, not just for the deserving person, but for the bad person, for the undeserving person, which is all of us. It's a story about God's unrelenting affection, not just for friends, but for his enemies, for rebels, for runaways. It's about his unrelenting affection, not just for the Ninevites, for the unbelievers, but for all of the Jonas as well, all of the believers. You see, God's grace is aimed at all of us. The gospel is for Christians too. And God's rescuing grace, it doesn't just save you. It doesn't just give you that ticket to heaven. God's grace is what grows you. God's grace, it doesn't just ignite the Christian life. It's the fuel that keeps it going. And this inexhaustible, Relentless grace is the very, it's the grace that, that is what we celebrate and what we remember when we come to the Lord's table and take communion. See, the story of Jonah, it shows us in many ways that God, he spares no expense to run after, to come after the, those he loves. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God not sparing any expense to come after, to rescue those he loves. I mean, he did not even spare his own son. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we're coming not to remember and celebrate our work and look at all, that, all the things that I've done, my work, my accomplishment. No, we come to the Lord's table to remember and to celebrate his work, what he has done for us what he has done in order to bring runaway rebels home. So I want to invite the band to come back up. And we're actually, we're going to go into a time right now of communion. And there are some tables spread out around the room. And on the tables, there's bread and there's a cup. These are really simple elements. Nothing, there's nothing fancy about that. But I love how God uses the real simple, mundane things to show us something extraordinary, to remind us of something extraordinary, of what he did. And so the band is going to play, and when, when we are, you know, here's the thing too, is that we don't have to like, oh, is it right? Am I, am I okay to go? Am I okay to go? Like, you know, we, we kind of freak out sometimes, like, is it safe to go now? Have I gotten myself uh, fessed up? Have I gotten myself forgiven enough that I can go? Here's the deal. The, bo- the, the bread represents God's body, Jesus' body given to us. That he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. He was raised, for life, raised to life after three days. And we now have the Spirit of God. When we place our tr- trust in Christ, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. We have everything that we need. The, the cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So the idea here is that we're not going to go get a little bit more forgiveness. Let me get a little more forgiveness. Just a little bit more. I need a little bit more forgiveness. No, the gospel is that you have all of the forgiveness that you will ever have. Right now, if you are a Christian, you are as forgiven right here, right now, that you, as you will be in heaven. Think about that. And so when we take of the cup, we're, we're not trying to get a little bit more forgiven. We are celebrating, basking in the once and for all forgiveness that we have in Christ. And that is good news. And it's good news for people who, who run away. It's good news for all of us. And so now as the band plays these songs, let's, let's go to the, the table and let's take of those elements 
Again, to remember his work for us, not our work for him, but his amazing finished work for us. So God, we thank you that this whole thing is about you. This whole story is about you. It's about your pursuit of us. God, that there is nowhere we will be able to hide. God, for all of the runners in the room this morning, God, may they experience your relentless, inexhaustible love pursuing them. Not to punish them, God, but to bring them home back back to you where we were created to be. God, thank you for your once and for all forgiveness, your acceptance of us. So right now, we, we want to just remember and reflect on that. We thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. So let's take time to do that now.